Well, uh, I'd love to give a really quick answer to what the church does, but uh, I guess you pay me to do a bit more than that, so uh, I'll, give you a four, I'll give you a 30 or 40 minute answer. How about that? Um, well, it's good to be, uh, good to be back uh, in the pulpit again, or the lectern, I guess, uh, again this week, uh, after Fred last week, which was great as well. And we're back to our series uh, on the church and what the church uh, is all about. As uh, Chris said, we're trying to answer that question, what does the church do? Uh, I remember when I worked as an engineer, uh, the company that I worked for, the organisation that I worked for, went through the process of trying to develop, trying to discover their mission and vision statement. Uh, I have to admit, I always found it mildly humorous, if not a little bit disturbing, that they needed to spend a couple of years working out what it was that we were actually supposed to be doing as an organisation. But it's actually uh, surprising, I think, really, how often it is that we uh, lose track of what our so-called core business uh, really is uh, and you end up finding yourself doing things that really aren't that important. Uh, In recent times people have uh, been big on the vision and the mission statement but actually it's the kind of thing that people have been doing for uh, a long time. Uh, They just used to call it mottos rather than mission and vision statements. Uh, The school that I went to had the motto all knowledge through Christ which I reckon is probably a pretty good summary of what they were trying to achieve, what their mission, uh, what their vision really was. Sydney University, uh, where I studied, they had the motto Sidere mens iadem mutato, which doesn't really help very much because it's in Latin. Uh, And I looked up the Latin translation, uh, which means the constellation is changed, the disposition is the same. Which which I'm not really sure that helps very much either. (laughs) But apparently it means something like the traditions of the older universities in the Northern Hemisphere are continued here in the South. But anyway, uh, whatever the, uh, the Latin phrase means and, uh, and however you understand it, the point is that people like to come up with these punchy summaries, don't they, of what we do in certain settings in order to kind of crystallise uh, in our minds what we're supposed to be focusing on. Well, those uh, summaries and mission statements and vision statements can be helpful in business and they're helpful, I think, in the church as well. Uh, And in fact, Jesus himself gave some pretty good summaries uh, of what the church was supposed to be doing. And we're going to look at a couple of those this morning. And the first that we're going to look at is in Matthew 22, verse 36 to 40. So if you want to turn to Matthew 22, verse 36. I always thought it was a little bit silly, uh, the church trying to come up with with mission statements in a way because uh, someone had already asked Jesus what we were supposed to be doing and he'd given an answer. Uh, And that's what happens in Matthew 22. Uh, uh, An expert in the law, a religious leader, comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replies, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment And the second is like it, love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. 
So in answer to the question, what is the most important thing for Christians, for the church to be doing, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. That's it. That's the first, that's the greatest commandment. That's the most important thing to be doing. One of the uh, most significant events in the Old Testament, uh, one of the most significant events in the history of God's people and in the history of God's church was at Mount Sinai when God had delivered the people from Egypt and he brought them uh, to Mount Sinai and he gave them the Ten Commandments and, and God says to the people there in Exodus 19, you will be for me a kingdom of priests uh, and a holy nation, which is just another way of saying that their great purpose in being saved by God, their great purpose in being rescued by God was to live before God and to live for God. How are they to do that? Well, Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments goes on to spell that out and the Ten Commandments give a shape, a summary of the way that they were to live before God. And Jesus then in the New Testament summarises that even more. He takes ten and he makes it two and he summarises, he condenses it even more and he says, what are the two most important things? Well, it's to love God with everything that you are and it's to love your neighbour as yourself. Here then is the great goal of the church. What's the goal of the church? It is to love God with all our heart and soul and mind. That's what it's all about. That's what we're here for. That's really what we're doing here this morning. That's why we go to growth groups. That's why uh, we meet with other Christians to pray. That's why we read the Bible. That's why we study the Bible. That's why we read Christian books. It's why we organise church lunches. It's why we do all these things. The reason is or the reason ought to be, is so that we might love God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. That's the reason, or that's what it ought to be anyway. Like any good mission statement, it's good to keep going back to it and asking the question, well, is that actually what we're doing? Are we actually doing that? Is that the purpose that we meet with? Is that the purpose that we live with? Are we loving God? Are, are our, our times together this morning, uh, is that really about growing in love for God? Are our growth groups really about loving God and growing in love for God? Are, are, are our evangelistic efforts really about loving God? I think uh, much too easily our, our motives slip into more individualistic concerns. Uh, Sundays and, and growth groups become often about me feeling good or about me being helped through my struggles, they reduce to being little more than like a self-help group rather than about, about worshipping and loving and adoring and serving the God who we love. But even if we don't lose sight of that vision uh, of loving God, we can also skew the vision by taking one of those aspects, one of those components and making it definitive, making it greater than the others. So we might make loving God with our heart the way of loving God. So someone, someone one person says, I love God with my, with my strong feelings about God. That's how I love God. And another person comes along and they say, I love God with my mind and the way that I think about him. And then another person comes along and says, I love God in the way that I act the, the things that I do for God. That's how I love God. We often uh, say things, uh, don't we? 
Uh, it's only, the, 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 we use the expression, it's only head knowledge. Uh, it hasn't made it into my heart yet. And there's a sense, isn't there, in which that's a useful distinction. But this great commandment of Jesus pushes us to do something better than that. It, it pushes us deeper. After all, it's with our mind that we think about stuff and it's with our mind that we dwell on things. You know, you might dwell on God and on Christ and on the cross for a couple of hours a day, you know, all added up throughout the day. Isn't that loving God with your mind? Thinking about those things? You might spend time every day thinking about how am I going to love God in my work, in my school, in my home life, in my family? Isn't that loving God with our mind? Spending time working out how the gospel applies to our lives? Isn't making decisions because we want to follow Christ and trust Christ, isn't making rational decisions about how to do that? Isn't that loving God with our mind? Peter Adam, uh, in his book, Hearing God's Words, talks about the wedge that Christians have often driven between the heart and the mind. He writes, if we ask the question, is spirituality fundamentally of the heart or the mind, then the answer that we give will have a profound effect on our spirituality. If we answer that spirituality is fundamentally of the heart, we will then assume that intellect and rationality are deeply unspiritual and damaging to spirituality. If we answer that spirituality is fundamentally of the mind, then we'll avoid emotion and regard the safest spirituality as the most rational and the most controlled. He goes on to say that because spirituality of the heart has often been elevated above that of the mind, that we often tend to value the intuitive and the spontaneous rather than things that are carefully considered and thought about deeply. But biblical spirituality and biblical love for God involves both the mind and the heart. It's passionate truth. It's logic on fire, as Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say. But if we often drive a wedge between the mind and the heart, we also, I think, often drive a wedge between the mind and the heart and actions as well particularly in, uh, in, our, in our age, in a postmodern activist age, uh, in movements like the emergent church, the focus on loving God is often on loving God in actions, often to the exclusion of loving God in other ways. So uh, preventing the spread of AIDS uh, in Africa becomes more important than understanding who Jesus is or believing in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Putting all those things together, I suspect it would be better to sometimes say something like, uh, it's only in my head, instead of saying it's only in my head and it hasn't made it to my heart, it would be better to say something like, it's just information. It's just knowledge and it hasn't changed the way that I think or the way that I love and feel or the way that I act. That's what it's about. It's not just about head or heart. It's about knowledge versus consuming the mind and the heart and our whole life. We might easily turn the phrase around and say, it's only in my heart and it hasn't changed the way that I think yet. It's just in my feelings. Isn't that just as arid 
as head knowledge, to just have great feelings but no good thoughts about God? Isn't it just as arid to have a spirituality which is all about feelings and it doesn't change the way that you live? It doesn't consume your life? What is the most fundamental thing which the church ought to do? The most fundamental thing which the church ought to do is to love God with every fibre of our being, with our mind and our heart and our soul and our strength. So that's the first and the most important part. The second thing which Jesus tells us to do is to love our neighbour as ourselves. And there are two ways that that command is worked out in the New Testament. Uh, In the first place, it's applied to the church. How do we love our neighbour? Well, we do that by loving the church. Here are some words that Paul addressed to the church in Colossians. In chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Or in Galatians 5 verse 13, You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbour as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. There are instructions that Paul gives to the church about how the command to love our neighbour as ourselves is fulfilled. In 1 John, one of the great tests of whether we truly belong to Christ is whether we really love our fellow Christians. In other words, uh, one of the the special ways that love for our neighbour is worked out uh, is through loving the church. The problem is, uh, I think, that that's immensely difficult to do, isn't it? Uh, you might think that that is the wrong way around, that actually it ought to be easy to love the church. It ought to be easier to love the church than to love people outside the church. But actually in some ways I think it's much more difficult to love people inside the church. Why is that? It's because the deeper the love, the more costly it is and the more painful it is and the more it it, it unveils and exposes our sin and the sin of the people that we're seeking to love. What did it cost Jesus to love the church? It cost Jesus his life to love the church. Why did it cost him that? It cost him that because of our sin. Paul says, love the church, love each other, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for us. Actually, somewhat astonishingly, that's the same standard of love that Paul uses uh, for between a husband and a wife. He says in uh, the, the beginning of uh, Ephesians 5, he says, you should love the church as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then later on in that chapter, he says to, to husbands, you should love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I sometimes uh, say to people that being in a church is like being married to 250 people. But it's actually worse than that, isn't it? Because in a marriage, well, at least in our culture, you get to choose who you marry. Belonging to God's church is like being, having 250 arranged marriages 
with people that you never chose. People that you never chose to love. Why would we do that? Why would we love the church? Why would we love deeply people that we never chose to love? People who are so different from us. Why would we love them as Christ loved us? Well, the question gives the answer, doesn't it? Why would we do it? We do it because Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us. And if Jesus loved his church and suffered for his church, then we should love his church and suffer for his church as well. So they're the first two ways, the first two things, I think, that the church does. The church loves God with everything that we are and everything that we have. The church loves God's people. The church loves the church. But then the church, uh, but then there's another way in which the New Testament applies this command to love our neighbour. And the best example of that is is probably in Luke's Gospel, in in, uh, Luke chapter 10, where another expert in the law comes to Jesus uh, and he asks, who is my neighbour? He wants to know, how does this command, who is my neighbour, work out? And in response to that, Jesus tells that famous parable of the uh, Good Samaritan. And the shocking answer which that parable gives to the question, who is my neighbour, is, well, actually, your neighbour is anyone. It's even your, your hated and despised enemy. It's the Samaritan. Similarly, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. There's undoubtedly something special in the Bible about love for God's people. Uh, Paul writes in Galatians, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. But the mistake is to think that we ought to love the church to the exclusion of everybody else. That was the mistake, I think, that some of the religious leaders in Jesus' day had made. They thought they were supposed to love God's people and not love anybody else, to hate their enemy. But Jesus says, no. Love both. In fact, Jesus says that in doing that, we're to be like God. Uh, God loves his people. God loves his church with a special love. But God also loves the world. God also sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. He causes his, uh, his son to rise on the evil and the good. And God longs for his enemies to repent and to believe and to love Jesus. And that uh, is one of the key ways that the, well, one of the key things that the church ought to do. It ought to be a, a community of people who imitate the love of God, not just for friends, but for enemies as well. One of the, uh, the common ways that people talk about evangelism is to talk about friendship evangelism. Uh, and that's in some ways a dominant model, isn't it, in, our, uh, in evangelical circles, is to talk about friendship evangelism. But in, in some ways, I, I don't like that term. Uh, I don't, I, I'd rather call it something like love evangelism. 
because it makes friendship the dominant way that we share the gospel. But, but Jesus is calling us to something bigger and something broader than that. He's calling us uh, to share the gospel in the context of showing love to all kinds of people. You know, you don't have to uh, become friends with someone to love them. You don't have to be hanging out with someone you know, every weekend and you don't have to be uh, you know, great buddies with someone to be able to love them. And in fact, Jesus says that there ought to be people in our lives who we love that aren't great friends, aren't we don't spend a lot of time with, but we love them anyway. The, the, the Samaritan who showed help to the guy who'd been attacked on the road, he'd never met him before. They weren't friends. But he loved him. It might mean for us helping, a, a, you know, simple things like helping a work colleague carry something to the car. It's a way of loving someone, isn't it? You don't have to be their best friend. You can do something simple but also something deeply profound. It might mean helping a neighbour build a shed. It might mean giving someone a lift somewhere in a car. It doesn't have to be complicated. It just has to be motivated by love for God and love for people made in the image of God. Actually, there was a story recently of an atheist in Texas uh, who had a long history of bringing lawsuits against the church because of religious imagery. Uh, you know, he didn't like it and so he would always take them to court. But he got into financial trouble and one of the local churches actually banded together to, pay, uh, f- to provide money for him to buy food and to pay for his medical costs. And this guy was so completely overwhelmed that these people that he'd, he'd fought against for so much of his life, would actually care enough to give him money so that he could survive. He was so overwhelmed, in fact, that for a couple of months he became a Christian, in inverted commas, uh, because he, after two months he went back to his atheism and staggeringly back to his bitterness toward Christians as well. But regardless of the ultimate outcome, the point is, The point is that it's a powerful reminder of Jesus' call to love our enemies and not just our friends. So the two great commandments map out for us these three great loves uh, as a picture of what the church does. The church loves God with all of our being. The church loves God's people. The church loves God's world. But aside from these uh, two great commandments, there's one other thing which is often rightly identified as a key part of what the church does uh, and that's the, the, the part of Matthew's Gospel which is often called the Great Commission. So turn with me to, uh, to Matthew 28. Matthew 28 verse 16. And there uh, it says that Jesus has just been crucified, he's been raised from the dead. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In other words, here is Jesus' parting challenge, parting task to his disciples and to his church. Make disciples of all nations, baptising them and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Uh, Or in Acts chapter 1, Jesus says to his disciples, you will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Or in John 20 verse 21, as the Father has sent me, Jesus says, I am sending you. What is the task of the church? It's to love God with our heart, mind and soul, to love the church, to love our neighbour, but it's also to make disciples, to make disciples of all nations, to speak to people about Jesus, to speak to people about what Jesus has done, his death and his resurrection, and to call on them to repent and to trust in Christ. It's to teach people to obey everything that Jesus has commanded us, which includes the two great commandments, to love God with all our heart, mind and to love our neighbour. Next week uh, we'll think a bit more about how we do these things a bit more concretely, but for the moment I just want to think about how these two things fit together. How do the two great commandments and the great commission fit together? I think the answer uh, lies in understanding that there's a certain primacy to the great commandments. Long after everything else has passed away, long after the need for mission in the world has ended, long after the great commission has been fulfilled, long after Jesus has returned and restored and recreated his world, long after that, we'll still be loving God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength and we'll still be loving our neighbour as ourself. The Great Commission, in a sense, will pass away, it will be done, it will be completed. But the two Great Commandments will go on and on and on forever and for eternity. In that sense, they are the great goal of the Gospel. A restored humanity devoted to God and loving each other. But it is the great goal grounded in the reality of people hearing about Jesus and trusting in him. It's a reality grounded in, uh, in people hearing through the church the good news about Christ. The great problem not just for humanity but for the church as well, is that the kind of love which Jesus calls us to is beyond us, isn't it? We can't love God with with everything that we are and everything that we have. We can't love the church. We find that so difficult. We can't love our neighbour as ourselves. We seem so selfish. If the church was nothing more than a group of people gathered together and committed to loving God and committed to to loving each other, it would be a waste of time. It would be a complete waste of time to be in the church. It would be a waste of time because 
we be powerless to achieve our mission statement. That's pretty much the point of the Old Testament, actually, I think, is that they were powerless to fulfil what God had called them to be. Here I've brought you out of Egypt. This is what I want you to be. Love me, serve me, love my people, love my world. And what did they do? They failed. What is God's solution? God's solution is not the church. God's solution is Jesus. His death reconciles us to God. His life, his resurrection life, which he shares with us through the Holy Spirit, enables us to grow in love for God and and grow in love for God's people and love for God's world. Unless people hear that good news about Jesus and become disciples and are baptised into his name in the name of the Father and the name of the Holy Spirit, unless that happens, they will never love God. They will never know God. And the church will never fulfil what God has called it to. As God sent Jesus into the world, so he now sends us. The Father sent Jesus to restore a broken humanity and God now sends the church to restore a broken humanity by pointing people to Jesus Christ. There's one other way which is worth mentioning that the Great Commission flows out of the two Great Commandments and that is that if we truly love God with all our being, if we truly love God with all our heart and mind and soul, then the the thing that we want most of all is for other people to love him as well. If we truly love our neighbour as ourselves and the greatest treasure that we want to give to them is for them to know God and to love him as well. When uh, businesses talk about mission statements, they always talk about alignment. I love love business speak. But uh, they talk about alignment to the vision and to the mission, which is the question, are we doing what we set out to do? That's the point. Here are four questions for us as a church and for us as God's people to help us think about whether or not we're aligned to God's vision for what the church should do. Will you, by trusting Jesus, seek to love God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength? Will you, by trusting Jesus, seek to love God's church? Will you, by trusting Jesus, seek to love your neighbour, even your enemies, just as God loves his enemies? Will you seek to love God and your brother and sister in Christ and your neighbour so much that the greatest thing you can do now and ever is speak to them words about God's son Jesus? Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that 
through Christ we have received forgiveness of sins and thank you that through Christ we are your children, that you love us, that you care for us and that you give to us all that we need for life and godliness. Father, we thank you too that through Jesus you've opened our hearts to be able to love you, you've opened our minds to be able to love you and you've enabled us to be able to love you with our whole self, with everything that we do and everything that we are and with our actions and every single part of us. Lord, forgive us that so often we still love ourselves more than you. Forgive us that we're still so selfish. Lord, forgive us that we don't love your church. Forgive us that so often we become bitter about your people, disenchanted. Lord, help us to love them. Help us to love them in the way that Christ has loved us in that he gave himself up for us and suffered for us. Lord, help us also to love your world. Help us to love our enemies. Help us to be patient and kind, slow to anger and abounding in love. Father, we ask these things not because we want to bring glory to ourselves, but because we want to do what you've called us to do as your people. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.